1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Grid hacking in Ukraine. Smartphone forensic shop Celebrite suffers a data breach. WhatsApp appears to have an encryption issue, but most observers think it's not really a backdoor. An update on iPyramid. WordPress gets eight patches. ENISA issues recommended best practices for securing connected cars. A U.S. Justice Department IG will look into the FBI's investigation of classified information handling in the Clinton State Department. President Obama expands NSA's authority to share raw SIGINT with other intelligence agencies. Guccifer 2.0 wants to clear a few things up, and the shadow brokers say bye-bye, or maybe dos vidania. With that accent, sometimes it's hard to tell. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 13, 2017. The power outages in the Kiev metropolitan area, sustained on December 17, 2016, continue to be ascribed to hacking, and to the same Russian operators believed to be behind the similar hacks of December 2015. Researchers at Information Systems Security Partners, ISSP, are doing most of the -the on-the-record discussion. Observers differ as to whether the hack is nuisance, demonstration, misdirection, trial run, or some mix of all of these. Celebrite, the mobile forensic firm that established a reputation as law enforcement's go-to shop for unlocking smartphones, confirms that it suffered a data breach. Motherboard says the lost information includes databases, customer data, and technical notes on the company's offerings. Motherboard also says the stolen data is legit— They're in touch with people who say they're involved in the breach, and those contacts represent themselves as hacktivists protesting recent moves by Western governments to ratchet up surveillance capabilities. Celebrite yesterday issued a statement acknowledging the breach, which it characterized as unauthorized access to an external web server that included a legacy backup of the company's end-user license management system. It's investigating, cooperating with the authorities, and is in the process of notifying affected customers. The company advises My.Celebrite account holders to change their passwords. A University of California crypto expert reports a flaw in WhatsApp end-to-end encryption that observers say could enable Facebook to read WhatsApp messages. That, of course, is contrary to WhatsApp and Facebook-declared policy. WhatsApp says the apparent bug is really a feature designed to make security and privacy easy for people who might frequently change devices or SIM cards. They advise users to turn on security notifications. The flaw was widely described as a backdoor, but that, according to most experts, isn't an accurate characterization of the issue. An issue, then, but probably not really a backdoor. More news and speculation appear about the Italian brother and sister accused of spying on Italian bigwigs for years, using iPyramid spyware. The motives remain unclear, but may have involved gathering insider information useful in various forms of financial speculation. The widely used blogging platform WordPress has patched eight security issues, including cross-site scripting and cross-site request forgery vulnerabilities. Enisa offers a report on best practices for securing connected cars. Their recommendations are organized into three sections, policy and standards, organizational measures, and security functions, and they appear to represent the sort of familiar common sense that best practices often do. The Justice Department's Inspector General has announced an inquiry into the FBI's handling of the Bureau's investigation of former Secretary of State Clinton's handling of classified information. Director Comey says he welcomes the scrutiny. The outgoing Obama administration has loosened restrictions on NSA's sharing of raw data with other agencies. Privacy advocates are unhappy, but the worries seem to be in part of the slippery slope variety, in which the removal of requirements to scrub information inadvertently collected on U.S. citizens could lead to the exploitation of such information by other federal agencies. The changes are summarized by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence as follows. The letters IC in the summary refer, of course, to the intelligence community. First, only allow IC elements to access raw SIGINT in circumstances where the information will further a foreign intelligence or counterintelligence mission in a significant way. Do not permit raw SIGINT to be accessed for law enforcement purposes. Do not apply to information collected under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, including Section 702. Establish rules that a recipient IC element must follow when accessing, processing, or retaining raw SIGINT, or disseminating information derived from SIGINT. These rules closely follow those used by the NSA. Set up extensive training, auditing, oversight, and compliance requirements that are comparable to the NSA's for similar activities, and require periodic reauthorization of access and high-level reviews of activities conducted under the procedures. And finally, some of everyone's favorite hackers, hacktivists, agents, crooks, or sock puppets are back. You can take your pick on which one of these descriptions to buy. For some reason, it's still controversial, and our stringers almost come to blows over the issue. In any case, they make their return to the cyber stage as the week comes to a close. First are the shadow brokers. they of the hakawi accented scriptwriters' broken English. Take a bow and exit, not, we think, pursued by a bear. The bears have other pursuits, right fancy? But because they see much risk coming in and few bitcoins going out, says they. So as they bow, they release a bunch of alleged equation group weapons and say, in effect, Dasvidaniya, we're out of here. Wealthy elite will miss them, we're sure." And that big auction never went anywhere for them. Skeptics will be forgiven for suspecting that the auction wasn't the point of the whole exercise to begin with. So, shadow brokers, as you come in from the cold, stay warm and keep the light on for Guccifer 2.0, who also frets another hour on the boards. This one is back to comment on the U.S. intelligence community's conclusions that the Russian government has been up to no good in American political networks. Guccifer 2.0 says, and wants all of us to know, quote... I have totally no relation to the Russian government." End quote. So that settles it. Say hello to Fancy and the Gang Goose, and happy Friday the 13th to you and the gang. And now, a word from our sponsor Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Joe, I I saw uh, recently some. there's been some talk about uh, this notion that our mobile phone numbers, um, we should be protecting them in the same sorts of ways that we protect our social security numbers. That... Perhaps we're being a little too cavalier in our willingness to give out our mobile phone numbers. What's your take on that? Um,
2: I understand that, that there's a concern in mm-hmm. there, and I think I think the concern is not invalid that at some point in time we're going to start seeing these uh, man in the middle attacks on like two factor authentication. Right, uh, And uh, I think the, the source you're citing said that we shouldn't be using our mobile phone for two-factor authentication. We should be using something else.
1: Right, right because of the, the possibility of a, of a man in the middle that right. it, it's, it's not as secure as we think it is. It,
2: and it probably isn't as secure as we think it is. Uh, but it here, here's the difference between my mobile phone number and my social security number. It's very easy for me to get a new mobile phone number. Uh, I can I can change that, and I can go through and change change the information in the sites that I need to change it in, and I'm done. Uh, getting a new social security number is not so easy, mm. very difficult. Uh, additionally, when you're talking about using your mobile phone for two-factor authentication, the purpose of doing that is to take advantage of the multiplicative nature of adding a second factor. So now somebody not only has to have your username and your password, which is what we call a single factor, even though it's actually two things, but it's just a single factor. Now they have to get another factor of of having your phone number and intercepting, physically intercepting the message from one point to the next. That makes it more difficult to do. So I still think it's good to use your mobile phone for two-factor authentication, there are better uh, better options. In fact, some of them are even mobile phone based, where they don't require your your phone number, like Google Authenticator.
1: Right. So I, I guess if, for the time being, uh, certainly two-factor is better than than single-factor. Right. Uh, no matter what. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But there it seems like there are certain use cases, perhaps people in certain situations who, I don't know, you know, high risk, high security kinds of things, where it's important not to believe that uh two-factor using a mobile phone number is more secure than it actually is. right if
2: if you're of high enough value then you should probably not be using your phone for for two-factor authentication you should probably be using something like like an rsa token or google authenticator which doesn't require any communication after the initial
1: setup joe kerrigan thanks for joining us my pleasure And they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io/slash Cyberwire. That's strata.io/slash Cyberwire. My guest today is Allison Burke, Executive Director of the Stanford Cyber Initiative. The Stanford Cyber Initiative is a research and education initiative that was established by the Hewlett Foundation in 2014 to study how cybersecurity fits into society in a more general sense than the traditional notion that cybersecurity is mainly a problem for computer scientists.
0: Our particular purview in terms of research and education is what we're calling cyber social systems. And those are the integration of secure cyber technologies into the different systems within society, like the healthcare system, the financial system, the labor system, and so on. And so our research takes a unique view on those systems and looks at how secure cyber technologies are affecting and complementing the activities that already go on in those systems and what security needs those systems have that are unique that research could help with.
1: So, so let's dig in a little deeper to that, because that uh, cyber social systems is not a term that I've heard before. What are you hoping to achieve by approaching that side of things?
0: Yeah, so it, it's a new term that we came up with that I suppose we're trying to popularize. And our hope is that we can both produce policy-relevant research that goes beyond the sort of uh, academic or ivory tower view of cybersecurity. Uh, as something that is highly technical or that is uh, sort of a specialized set of skills. Our hope is that our research can show how cybersecurity is more of a shading to problems that might arise in other sectors of society as opposed to sort of its own unique field or unique discipline. We want to show how cybersecurity affects problems in the labor industry, for example, with new forms of worker platforms or ways for workers to. Uh, combine different tasks and form a job that they can do remotely or that they can do as part of the gig or contract economy. Uh, We want to show how that affects both labor security and the security of the platforms that are offering those types of jobs. Um, Another example is that we want to show how the healthcare system has unique cybersecurity needs that go beyond the issues of patient data security that are addressed by HIPAA or high-tech laws and look at how physicians are using patient records digitally to better serve patients, um, how patients can have a better relationship with their physician via things like video calling and online chat, um, and how patient data can be securely provided to health researchers in a way that would benefit the entire population while also preserving patient privacy. So we, we do think that cybersecurity is something that will become more and more of a skill that's integrated into multiple professions and into different types of education, um, rather than just being something that only computer scientists focus on.
1: And so what is the process by which you hope to explore these possibilities?
0: Sure. Uh, Education is a large part of it. We support undergraduate courses, um, as well as Cyber policy boot camps um, for policymakers and congressional staffers and media. Uh, we're looking into offering those also for law enforcement and reaching out to other sectors of society. Uh, but our primary way of affecting this change is through research. So every year we fund approximately 1.1 million in research projects that are multidisciplinary with faculty on the Stanford campus who are running the projects. Um, the multidisciplinarity angle is important to us and also important to Stanford in the sense that every project involves a collaboration between schools uh, or between departments. So we'll have computer scientists working with sociologists or with people from the School of Education, from the School of Business or from the School of Law so that we can get that kind of better integration of cybersecurity into different disciplines through these projects. And then of course, communicating the results of those projects in such a way that they reach think tanks and policymakers. And important decision makers and go beyond sort of the academic publishing platform uh, is also important to us. We're still searching for different and creative ways to do that. Um, one way is through white papers and through the sort of executive education conference events that we have. Uh, another way is through the podcast that we run or through a weekly newsletter, but we're hoping to be able to reach a much broader sector of society than the traditional academic publication because we understand that People who are concerned with cybersecurity or for whom cybersecurity affects part of their job may not be reading conference publications or they may not be reading academic journals, but could still benefit from the research that we're producing.
1: And, and looking forward, how how will you measure success? We're hoping to measure success
0: based on our impact on policy and on conversations that occur around cybersecurity, um, both in the U.S. and globally. Hopefully one way we could measure that is by the proliferation of this view of cyber social systems or that cybersecurity is a firmly entrenched part of multiple jobs and sectors that aren't simply data science or computer science. Um, We're also hoping to measure success by the number of projects that we're able to support and by the distribution of our research across fields. Um, Our projects currently touch six out of seven of Stanford's schools, and we're hoping to add a project that involves the last school the school of earth energy and environmental science um and so hopefully our impact will be measured by the familiarity and the utility of our research results and of our contribution to the discourse
1: that's allison burke from the stanford cyber initiative they have a podcast by the way it's called raw data you can find it in all the usual places check it out And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.
0: Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too.